and welcome to the Scottish Rugby Podcast brought to you by the Scottish Rugby Blog. I am Cami Black. Um, as we promised at the end of last week's episode, we are going to look at our own Rocktopia, as Ian Hay christened it. So this is our our ideal world for a future world of rugby if we start with a blank sheet of paper. What are the things we're going to keep? What are we going to get rid of? We've had lots of suggestions on Facebook and Twitter, so we'll be coming to those in a moment. Uh, but joining me this evening to pick through those and maybe suggest a few of his own, we have with us uh, Stuart Cameron. Yes, hello. Yes, good Good to be on the Scottish Rugby Podcast for the first time. As good as people will know you, Stuart, um, of course, from anybody in the, the Border TV region will of course know you, but you've, you, know, you also pop up here and there as well, um, covering rug- Scottish Rugby. Yes, I'm like the bad penny, always popping up here, there and everywhere. Um, I'm actually from Edinburgh. Um, people think I'm from the borders because I'm obsessed with borders rugby, but uh, um, I'm actually uh, from Edinburgh. But I went down uh, south to Oxfordshire for 25 years. But I always said I wanted to come back um, to Scotland again, particularly live in the borders, which is what happened in 1999. So been here for 21 years now. Wow, goodness. So, um, well, the big question we ask anybody the first time they come on our podcast is what club socks they'd wear if they were selected for the Barbarians? Ah, uh-huh, yes, it's an interesting one because I only played up until um, the age of 15. I was a fullback back in the day, back in Andy Irvin's day, in fact. And um, I'm talking about being obsessed and stuff. I mean, he was my idol, my absolute hero back then. And I remember uh, he, he injured his knee in one game. And uh, the next uh, the next week, he was playing in a rugby match, and he was wearing this white bandage on the, on his knee. And of course, my next rugby match, I suddenly had a, a white bandage as well. Nothing wrong with my knee at all, but had to uh, <laughs> you know, do what my idol was doing. So, uh, so yeah, Andy Irvin was uh, was the main man in terms of socks, though. Yeah, it's, I only, as I say, I, I retired at fifteen. Because I'm blind in my in my right eye, so uh, when the left eye started going, it wasn't really a good recipe for playing rugby. So, so I gave that up. So I was I've been a spectator ever since. So, <clears throat> never really played at the uh, the top level. Although I did play with an England trialist called Graham Holsey at Abingdon School in Oxfordshire, and he went on to become uh, an England trialist, and I, I managed to uh, to play. Uh, alongside him so he was pretty useful but uh, no I I always wanted to to play for Trinity Academy um, which was my Edinburgh school but uh, I left Edinburgh when I was nine so I never got the chance to play rugby for Trinity so um, so Gordon Connell who is the one and only uh, Trinity Academy former pupil who represented Scotland in 1968 made his debut against England at a very soggy Dreek Murrayfield uh, in 1968 and he won his first cap that day alongside Ian Robertson uh, another legend of course of the game so we all uh, got a a day off uh, to celebrate the fact (laughs) and so that was where my rugby interest started uh, and I went along to that match it was the first match I'd ever been to my dad took me along and as I say uh, he actually scored a drop goal that day and it was one of these drop goals I always remember it was almost right underneath the post I mean literally up and down couldn't be more than two or three meters away and uh, he scored the three of the the six points that Scotland got that day and um, it, I always remember seeing it afterwards on black and white television and it's of course long wiped now in fact some of the the great matches of the past are, are no longer to be seen um, but yeah so so I would I would wear a Trinity Aki's black and yellow 
um, sock on one. Uh, and then on the other, well, it has to be a red and white stripes of the south of Scotland, um, who I absolutely adore the south and the history and the culture. Yeah, we might we might come on to that later with some of the suggestions we've we've had on uh, Facebook with that. I mean, it's it's interesting. A drop goal from right underneath the post. I don't think you'd with line speed these days. I don't think that'd quite be possible. <laughs> it was from what I remember. It was a, it was a, a snap ruck. Remember, I was only seven at the time, so very vague memories. Uh, a snap ruck. The ball came out, and it was literally uh, dropped the goal straight up and straight down again. And that was it. But I mean, the footage just—I mean, I've never seen the footage since. So um, it may have—it uh, may have been slightly different to that. But that's how I remember it. Yeah. Um, well, we might go back into the past with some of the suggestions we've had um, from people on on Facebook and Twitter for our our Rucktopia. This is you know we're taking our blank sheet of paper and we're starting again with how we would like rugby and Scottish rugby to to look. So we are going to go through, we, we I kind of gave people four very broad uh, topics to think about changes they'd make. So we've got the laws, we've got competitions, uh, pathways was one I suggested quite late in the day and, and, and structural changes as well. And then I've got, I've got a, a bit of another section as well for some of the more random suggestions that we've had that don't fall under those. Um, <laughs> I, I thought, Stuart, we, we'd start with laws um, because this was mm. uh, unsurprisingly the most popular um area for people's suggestions for changes they they would make what were there any that kind of sprang to mind when i when i set you this that, that you instantly thought well that's if i was in charge of world rugby this is the first change i'd make to the law book it's an interesting one that and i, I give it a lot of thought and and i keep coming back time and time to what rugby league did back in the old days they they got rid of two players for a start so made the scrums six men um they uh, effectively used the scrums purely as a means to restart the game, so we didn't have any faffing about. Uh, they scrapped the line out, so the ball goes out, and um, immediately um, you're back in play again. And, of course, they have the six-tackle rule, which which I think is fantastic because, uh, I mean, none of this 66 phases. I remember watching <laughs> a Heriot's Hoyt game one, once, and it's, it's actually on YouTube, and um, it, it's extraordinary. It was the last play of the game. It lasted 66 phases. I mean, it was dead exciting, but it was pick and drive and pick and drive. And I remember Stuart McFarland was uh, commentating on it, and... Um, how he managed to uh, to get through 66 phases and, and trying not to repeat himself um, is fantastic. So, so the six tackle rule, of course, would, would prevent that, and also it means that obviously on your six tackle you've got to get rid of it, and usually the high up and unders uh, happen. So the funny thing is, I'm not a big rugby league fan, but I've covered a few rugby league matches at Netherdale, Scotland, Ireland, Scotland, France, and and um, it was pretty exciting. The first time I actually literally been to a rugby league game and I was kind of relaxing as the ball went out uh, ready to, to film the line out then I forgot oh hang on there's no line outs and they're <laughs> off the other side of the park so from a spectator point of view I think it's fantastic to uh, to see all action entertainment and, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching rugby league I have to say for those reasons there's nothing worse than reset scrums and muddy pitches and all this you know malarkey going on and, and again line outs you know particularly if it's a windy day it's not straight and this that and the other at the end of the day you want to see the ball in play plenty of action there so speaks well there speaks a, well there speaks a former fullback <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely 
But I mean, it, it will kind of never happen because I mean, rugby league and rugby union are so different. But um, I do feel that rugby league did get it right in terms of uh, a spectacle because uh, you know those four things that they did certainly uh, made it incredibly exciting. And I'm sure you and I have both sat through matches where we just waited for the referee to blow his whistle and end it all because uh, it's not been a particularly spectacular uh, event on the pitch. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rules, but. It's interesting because because when you kind of film a film a match which is 80 minutes plus a little bit of injury time, bit of stoppage time, and you go back and once you take the the time that the ball's out of play or you know reset scrums and stuff, you only get half the match is actually in play. Um, and in this day and age when people have got so many other things to do and you've got to try and make the game more attractive, then I think those sort of things uh, are definitely uh, worth considering. So we agree that obviously that's not going to happen because they're not going to go down the rugby league route and, you know, props would be up in arms, what we're going to do, this, that and the other. So very controversial. But um, as I say, if you know that, that is a suggestion which I think would be very positive to get spectators in. But something which is more likely to happen, rolling subs. I mean, it more or less happens anyway, and 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 a lot of uh, a lot of clubs kind of fake injuries to get people off so they can bring other people on. Um, I see no reason why rolling subs shouldn't uh, shouldn't be allowed. So I'd like to see that uh, come into it. Well, I suppose um, that the flip side of that, and we've had it. This was a suggestion I'd made, I think, on on Twitter a few months ago, and and quite a few people have come through with this now. Is actually going back to what used to happen. Where there were no sub, no replacements allowed at all. Now, obviously, yes. how how are you? It, that might be more easily policed at a professional level, where you could have an independent doctor check out any injury, um, so that people weren't weren't gaming the system. Um, it might be harder to do at lower leagues. You might not even want to do it at lower leagues, where obviously you know injuries play a place. But but the the argument I think it was Brian Moore I saw a few years ago that he made was that in effect it would force players to be more to be better conditioned and you wouldn't mm. then get you know the big heavy lumps because guys would have to you know if you if you're sending a prop on to last 80 minutes you, you can't have someone that's 20 stones lumbering about the park um so i think that absolutely the, the rolling i suppose well the rolling subs is just an acceptance of what happens anyway i suppose the flip side of that is if you go with the rolling subs certainly at a professional level that you would potentially end up with with Back, back in a bit of a weight game, and back in with with just big guys that come on and do the job. Yeah, um, I mean, as as you say, there are kind of flip sides around. I I would like to see. I'd certainly like to see it in sevens. I know that's been a mm. bone of contention for many years. I mean, Watsonians have been dying for this to happen. I've had many a chat with uh, with Mike Kerr about that, and um, you know he's absolutely adamant oh we should have squads of 12 and um, rolling subs as well um, of course that's fine at the beginning of a seven season at the end of it when you've run out of players and sometimes <laughs> you can't even put eight together then um, you know it, it is a problem but um, I, I think it would give people more game time um, and as you say that the big props that can't sort of last the 40 minutes uh, or the 80 minutes um, they can have a bit of a breather and then come come back on again so rolling subs I think certainly we would consider and my pet hate I think is putting the ball in at a scrum by a scrum half into the second row and not being penalized now uh, we've seen so many inconsistencies with, with referees um, um, some being really harsh. Um, we all remember the Japan Scotland game, of course. Um, but you know, I, th I think it, you either enforce the law 
or you get rid of it. Um, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it's an in- that, again, that's something that, that a few people suggested on Facebook was this, I might even be on Twitter actually, that scrums, particularly at, at professional level, are such a, an unknown. I think the referee's doing a lot of guesswork and whether or not, you know, always have a, a te- already have a television match official. So whether or not you can have a, a, a second, you know, an assistant referee that comes on to assist in refereeing the scrum. So you could have one referee focused on the feed and one side of the scrum, and then you've got another referee on the other side of the scrum checking what the other what the other props are up to rather than relying on the assistant referee on the touchline. I mean, it's it, it adds an extra body, an extra official, but it's not... I'd, I'd, it, it might improve things because it might, rather than the, you know, having one referee guess at what's going on and lots of stoppages, if you've got somebody else there to help make the decision... And like you said, someone else there to help police that Putin, that might be a solution. Yeah. How many refs, um, assistant refs, can you end up with? I mean, some checking offsides and some, you know, looking at the line, the line outs and, and the scrums. It is, it is tricky. Um, I, I just am amazed that some referees who are standing next to the scrum half and literally it's a clearer view as they could possibly get. And they just ignore it. Mm. And I think it's 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 the old thing that the players all want, the coaches all want, is this consistency. So so I would say, you know, either you put the ball in straight or you scrap the rule and you just shove it into the the second row, which is what happens in rugby league, effectively. Uh, I mean, sometimes been to the back row. Um, it really is uh, um, as, as clear cut as that. Well, coming back to your suggestion, you know, the, the thing you were suggesting in terms of rugby league in numbers is whether or not mm. you could change the number of players on a on a rugby union pitch, do you need, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I, I love the dark arts of the back row, but do you, do you need to have two, two, um, you know, three back row players? Could you just get away with having a number eight at the base of the scrum, two second rows who, who around the park could do, you know, we, we've had Eddie Jones recently talking about players fulfilling a number of roles. So there's no, it would maybe force teams to think about, the kind of players they put in at lock, they don't always have to be a tall guy. We've had guys like Jason White in the past fulfilling, to you know, a dual role of a of a back row and and, and a lock on the same, on the pitch at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I'm a real fan of uh, of the back row, and I mean, we've got some cracking Scots at the moment who are, who are doing incredibly well. I mean, uh, you know, from the killer bees onwards, um, it's been amazing. And and you think, oh gosh, you know, Hamish Watson comes in and Jamie. And that Richie comes in, and uh, uh, everyone else. I mean, and there's just so many. You know, people like Chris Fasaro, and um, you know, I mean, a host of real world-class uh, back row players that we got. So you, you wouldn't really want to kind of um, lose uh, lose a couple of them, particularly if you enjoy their their kind of play and their style of play. But um, no, I think I think we're stuck with a 15 in rugby union. Um, although I say rugby league, um, you know, have, have done it well. It's created a little bit more space uh, around the park, but um, it does beg the question. Does doesn't it? And we, we saw we, we saw this um, years ago when Wigan played against Bath. Remember they had the cross codes yes. uh, matches, and um, Wigan hammered Bath at Rugby League. And then the next week at Rugby Union, it was Bath got the upper hand on that. So I mean, they are two very different games. Even though you would think that um, 
uh, it would be a lot closer, but it really was one-sided in, 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 in both of them. I think Wigan, Wigan went off and played sevens in preparation for that game. Yes, that's right. Uh, they Didn't they appear at the middle six sevens? Or I think they did, yes. Some high-profile ones. So, so, yeah, so it has, has been done before. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, they are two very, very different games. And, uh, you know, you, you do wonder how many rugby union, particularly props, if you like, in, in the front row, um, you know, how they would get on at rugby league. Would they actually last the distance? It's something that Scotland haven't ever really utilised in the same way that I suppose Wales Wales have in the past and England have in the past is is really looking at to league for players. I mean, we, there was the young lad, I think, that came up from Castleford and had a spell at Embra in the, you know, he never made an appearance for Embra. I think he was in the, in the academy for a while and then is back playing for Leeds Rhinos. But the... We, apart from Alan Tate, I can't think of the last time Scotland had a had a league player turn out for them. You know, some of that had really come from that area. And it's not really an area from a scouting point of view that Scotland seemed to have have tried to explore. Whereas England and, and to a lesser extent, I think Wales have always been very good at, at, at looking to to league to maybe provide players that can be turned can adapt to union. Yeah, it certainly goes the other way, doesn't it? You, you see loads of rugby union players going to rugby league, um, but it doesn't necessarily happen in the other direction. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I assume that Alan Tate went from union to rugby league and then came back. Came back again, yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yes, that's I think right, so, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, just had a blank moment there. But, um, but yeah, it, it is interesting, you know, the, this rugby union, rugby league. I think there's definitely is elements that are very, very exciting with rugby league, certainly from a, a spectacle point of view, whereas rugby union, um, you know, we, we have, we've all watched some pretty dire matches in our time. Uh, we've seen some great crackers as well, of course, but uh, if you get a really bad rugby union match, it's... Uh, it really is, um, you know, <laughs> you wonder why you pay to get in yeah. some of the time. So it's not as entertaining, whereas rugby league, I think, is more consistent in, in mm. you know, bringing out the entertainment. One suggestion we had from Jamie Scott, which, again, is about making more space on the pitch. So if we're not going to reduce the number of players, then uh, Jamie Scott's suggestion was to make the pitch wider. And again, I don't know, mm. I, I think from a, maybe from a club point of view, it's wide enough, but maybe certainly at national level and, and professional level where defences are so tight and, and well-organised, widening the pitch would would give an, a little bit more space and stretch defences. Yeah, how wide would you make it, though? Because, I mean... That's true. Obviously, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, there are some clubs which are actually um, probably two or three or maybe more metres um, under what they, they should be. Um, and And... You often see this that particularly at schoolboy level or whatever, and then they're, they're suddenly they get through to the final at, at the national stadium, and uh, suddenly it's it's an absolutely massive pitch that they're playing on, and and there's so much space uh, to be had there. Um, certainly, yeah, um, I think it would be quite nice to do that, but it'd be very very difficult to actually um, make that particularly with, with some of the existing uh, stadiums, which you'd have to probably knock down a bit and start rebuilding at the front just to, just to fit it in. So probably not as practical, but um, certainly um, anything that gives some speedy wingers a little bit of extra space is all right for me. And I'm sure yeah. Darcy Graham would love that. Yeah. Um, 
I like this, but this was also Jamie Scott who, and I, I agree with this wholeheartedly, is to stop people coming onto the pitch during stoppages. This is becoming like yes. NFL. And I think... The I, water I, carriers. Yes, and I would add to that the... Um, I would also add to that the uh, so people warming up in the dead ball area. Oh, yes. Yes, I hate that. <laughs> Celebrating tries. Yes. The whole, I, I hate whole that squad. on so many levels as well, particularly <laughs> when you're filming. You've got a camera at the back and they decide, oh, they're going to do training for 10 minutes and get in your way. Um, yeah, it, it, it is unnecessary. And we see it so many times as well. I mean... They shouldn't even be anywhere near the pitch, but that's what they do. They they warm up in the in in the dead ball areas, and sometimes it can come unstuck. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen that a few times. Um, we had um, Martin Clark got in touch to say uh, make scrum infringements, free kicks rather than penalties to stop teams milking scrum penalties. Yeah, which I, that's I rather an like interesting that. one. I've written that down myself, actually, uh, controversially again, because if you're, if you're going to come on here, you might as well be a bit controversial. Um, throw, about, throw it about a bit. Serious foul play. I mean, real serious foul play should be an automatic three points. You shouldn't even have to kick for goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that would certainly uh, cut out. Um, you also get the red card thrown in as well. But let's let's cut it out completely and uh, and that would definitely be something which would be a deterrent, you would think. Professional fouls. I would say, you know, again, automatic couple of points. That would certainly stop it, um, even if it's in your own half of the field. Um, you know, if you're going to start saying discipline, we've got to cut out discipline and, and get this taken out of the game. Um, why not? I mean, that would certainly be a deterrent because so many, we've seen it so many times. Um, each each team has at least a couple of uh, chancers <laughs> who will... <laughs> who will um, try their, their patience or try the, the referee's patience and try their luck and see how many fouls they can commit before the yellow card is finally brandished. And they will do it until that first yellow card. But if, um, you know, if there was actual points at stake, um, irrespective of where you are in the park and depending you know, how serious it is, as I say, serious foul play, I think, should be an automatic uh, you know, red card and... Uh, and three points without even kicking a goal so that, you know, even if you're in your own 22 and it happens, then um, you will get the point. So that, that would change things interestingly enough. And would, official foul of the I points. I suppose the only, the only thing with that would be that you could give, te- you would have to give teams the choice of take the three points or do you kick to the corner with a man down and go for a Yeah, there is the- that as well. Um, it, it would change it completely because as you say, if you're, if, if you're in the chance of getting of getting seven, then yeah, you could have the option. You could definitely have the option. Um, but I think you know serious foul play, which still exists in the game, even though um, you've sometimes got about sixteen cameras at different angles, and you do get done eventually. Um, but I, th- I just think if you if you're serious about cutting this this out of the game, then um, you know you can really step up to the mark and, and create quite a uh, an interesting situation where um, you know people will actually think twice if if you know that it's not just a penalty they're given away where they could miss it, but they could you know if if you if you're doing something serious enough like a headbutt or whatever, then it's three points and um, that is a big uh, a big uh, minus for your team. Um, professional fouls again, I think um, the same sort of thing could apply. Probably not as uh, 
uh, as bad in terms of points. I would say probably maybe two, maybe one, um, but something to consider. Uh, almost do away with the kicks at goal, apart from conversions. Um, mm. Minor offences, possibly. You know, your offsides, you'll still have them. And I think, you know, a kickable penalty there um, would be worth looking at. But um, it would I suppose you could, reduce, of game. you could reduce everything to a free kick, couldn't you? If it was a free kick, to you get a free kick, but you would get the line out, for example, that would, would make it appealing. Um, certainly that would, if, if you're going to give, give the choice, for lesser offences that might not be worth the point, would be to offer a kick to the corner. Or yeah, to, to, but to playing devil's advocate, of course, you'll then get the ones who will be you know, trying to con their way into yes. getting extra points, um, you know, which we've seen, of course, in the past as well. So I think if you are attaching point, automatic points to it, it would have to be absolutely clear cut, yeah. um, you know, serious foul players, I say. Um, and, you know, professional foul, if it's if it's something which is almost, you know, going to, going to affect a game's outcome, then, you know, that has to be uh, looked at a bit more seriously than, than they are at the moment. But... Um, you know, the, the kicks at goal thing, you know, again, you could be a team whose number one kicker has gone off early. Uh, you don't really have anyone else who's going to replace them. So you're not going to benefit necessarily uh, from a kick at goal, uh, particularly if it's like 40 metres out. Um, but if there's something in place which is automatic, then, you know, that could uh, that could freshen things up a little bit and could be quite interesting. Yeah, a few people suggested as well, but putting a clock on the kicker, I think this there yes. is all, there is already a one think, in a particular. Clock. I think yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the one the one that we said. Why why does everyone always boo um, Johnny Sexton? It's like it's not because he's Irish. It's because he takes too bloody long. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting because there is of course already a clock with conversions. But I'm not. I don't think there is a clock with penalties. I it was one minute. Was it? There may well be. I might be wrong. I might be. Wrong. I always thought that it was a minute for for any any kick, but. Uh... Maybe make it short. I suppose the question, the answer there would be make it shorter, or go back and do kicking. You have to take a drop goal, so there's no need to bring on a tee. Drop goal attempt there and then, and then that would it yeah. would save time. Yeah, save time, save time. Yeah, we're all for saving time and um, getting, getting more action on getting the, pitch. the game started again. Um, the other thing I was thinking was in terms of advantage. We see advantage sometimes played for. You know, a significant period of time. Mm. So one way of getting around that is to give an automatic ten-second advantage. So teams then have ten seconds to do something. You know, it gives it still gives the opportunity to try a cheeky wee chip over the top or something crazy. But you you have ten seconds to try something and then advantage is over. Rather than this, you know, ridiculous situation we get to particular teams pummeling the try line with. And you know, a seemingly endless advantage until the other team infringes or someone knocks on, and then we go back for the scrum that happened it was it was called ten minutes previous. <laughs> That's right. Yes, um, I can see certainly merit in that. Um, I mean, there are just so many rules. I mean, we're just, uh, I mean, we're just getting over over. Um, What's the word? Uh, I mean, we're, we're just kind of look, looking at the whole situation these days, and you look in the in the law book, and uh, it, it it's getting thicker and thicker. I think. I think, and, and World Rugby tried to simplify. It. And what, what what was interesting when you actually look at it is, you're almost getting there's more and more seeing almost a split between the professional and the amateur games. So because a lot of the laws are now a lot more of the laws are becoming a bit more optional. 
in terms mm. of it's down to the individual tournament organisers to decide what laws they're going to adopt or not. I mean, obviously, with television match officials, you can't get a television match official down at Scremiston on a, on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> um, so there are all these laws, and you wonder whether that's the way the, the game may be heading, that Bill Bowman certainly suggested that they may look at different scrum laws for the amateur game than they would have in the professional game because there are there are almost different sets of conditions. It's you know the, the players are different builds. There are different things going on there. I mean, I, I certainly remember my brother who who played at Hooker. So I can't remember which law change it was in the scrum, but there was one law change that was brought in to to, to deal with a particular issue in the professional international game. I think it was when they got rid of um, crouch touch engage and 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 introduced another one and and he felt it for him it was actually more dangerous because there was more potential to get in a, a slightly awkward body position but it was brought in to deal with a problem in the professional game and you wonder whether or not that we're almost heading that way where you'll end up with two types of rugby there'll be the rugby on the tv but then there'll be a slightly different version with different set of laws for the amateur game do you think that's that's likely or do you think players will always want to play the, the same sport that they see on telly yeah, it's difficult. I mean, again, there's merit in that because I mean, I mean, the times that we're stopping for uh, uh, and going back and checking the the video referee and um, you know going to the fourth official for for all sorts of things. So, um, I mean, these days you're getting international matches, which are if you went back to the old style of adding on injury time, I mean, some of them are 15 minutes yeah. or half. Uh, which is extraordinary. Whereas, obviously, that's not going to happen, as you say, down at, let's give Scremerston another plug there. Uh, you know, you will get a situation where um, it is kind of nearer the 40-minute mark when, you, when you're playing club rugby. So there are all sorts of different things going on. Um, but we all want to see the whole game simplified, ultimately. And, and no one's really, I think, done that. Uh, rugby League's definitely done it, but... Um, rugby union and i still think the jury's out on them but that they'll you know players will still try and bend the rules and they'll still try and get around them like the goal uh, you know the try on the against the uh, the post and that kind of thing well we'll remove the post then um that's what we did <laughs> all the issues and now because of that because someone did that um you know, it's suddenly it's not fair again. So that has gone. And of course, it's opened up this other discussion about, you know, do we actually need two posts? Do we, you know, can we just do what Carthur Queen's Park do and the American footballers just have the one post mm. with uh, the, the kind of Y shape? Um, and that kind of, from a safety point of view, you can only hit one post instead of two. That's going to be a 50% improvement. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that fascinates me about rugby. It's why I like rugby, but I can also understand at the same time, it's why rugby from a marketing point of view is must be maddening to try and sell because it, it almost becomes the game evolves to present new sets of challenges to every season to players so defense coaches found a way find a way around something so the game changes to challenge them to then overcome the next obstacle put in their way and that that for me is part of the the, the joy of rugby is it, it unlike other sports which you know, you think of, I think, you know, you think how long it took football to introduce VAR during the first change in football rules for goodness knows how long, I think, since they passed back to the keeper about 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> but rugby's constantly, you get two two new laws a year, a season almost with rugby. And, and I think part of that, that's part of its, its appeal for me is that it constantly throws up these new challenges for players to come over. But, but, but as you say, it causes 
it, it's then a hard game to get into if you're constantly having to to come back and look at the the law book every year. Well, of course, we always remember what Italy did to England in that first half uh, with their um, their dubious tactics, yes. and uh, I think they went. Didn't they go in the interval 10 nil up or something? Got slaughtered in the second half. But Eddie Jones started complaining and the players were complaining. This isn't rugby. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Italy loved it. And of course, everybody else loved it. And then they started checking the, the rule books. And oh, they were doing nothing wrong. But then they had to, you know, um, close close the gap um, mm. and and make it, uh, make it not happen. So, yeah, everyone, I mean, that's what, you know, coaches are being paid for, aren't they? They're, they're trying to get around every single law, trying to find that extra that extra inch. And, and that's what professional rugby is like these days. I mean, you know, it's all about all about money. It's all about, uh, you know, taking risks. It's uh, challenging things. It's it's using video analysis in a in a special way. It's, uh, you know, it, it's the, the GPS. It's, you know, so many more things involved now. And it's. Um, for what was basically a quite simple game to start with, I mean, it has turned into something completely different. Yeah, um, we'll, 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 we'll park laws um, for the moment. Um, we may touch upon them if, with some other bits that might cross over later on. But uh, we'll move on to competitions, changes we would make to competitions. And um, we had a, a good mm. suggestion from Andrew Archer. I'd be interested in your take on this, um, Stuart. It's uh, he suggested national leagues for those clubs that want it and regional leagues for those who don't want to play nationally. He said it would prevent being in a situation where teams are refusing promotion. Yeah, which does happen. I mean, Hoyt Harlequins did it a couple of years ago uh, for different reasons. I think they had a team which uh, were, um, I think half the team were basically having their their last crack of the whip um, and then they were all going to retire and then there's very little um, coming through the ranks to, to replace them. So they decided you know, that it would be in everyone's best interest if they didn't actually uh, go up to national rugby. And national rugby, um, I mean, it's a huge step up in terms of travel expenses, mm. um, persuading players to travel, you know, yourself, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very difficult situation. And, and a lot of the players, particularly those who just want to play rugby for fun, um, you know, they, they don't particularly want to, you know, leave the house on Saturday morning at seven, eight o'clock or whatever and get back gone midnight. Um, it, it's it's a very different scenario these days. I mean, different if you're a professional rugby player and you're living and breathing it and that's your ambition. But um, if you just want a game of rugby, then, you know, you would much rather have a little local derby and, um, and, and that would suit you fine. So, yes, um, I think it kind of happens more or less at the moment anyway you know if a team is ambitious enough and they want to play national rugby then they will um they will make sure that uh, they've got the infrastructure in place financially to do it and also the, the right kind of players who also share the club's ambition uh, like beric again we keep coming back to beric again for yes you. Um, so what we do on example. this podcast Stuart, we, we come back to beric continually on this podcast it's <laughs> the beric rugby podcast yes. yeah. but but no i mean it's it's really um it's really great to see clubs like that who who have you know slipped uh, down through the regional leagues and then got themselves back up um uh, with fantastic work that goes goes on at that club um and you know there, there are many like 
uh, like Berwick, which is great to see, and they're ambitious, and uh, they've got a great youth development um, in place, and and it's just great to see, and and I think they offer something for people. Um, similarly, though, if you don't want to play at first team level necessarily, and you want to play in the seconds or whatever, and you want to play local. That's absolutely fine as well. Um, personally, I, I'm a 10-team I'm a league person. I, I'm not a fan of the 12 teams. So I would like to see 40 instead of 46 in national teams. You've got the 10 in the premiership. You've got then 10 in nationals, one, two, and three. Various reasons for that. And I think the main one is that it makes things a lot more exciting throughout the season. And we had a classic example this season with, with Jed Forrest, who were in the relegation zone they were in ninth place in the premiership and in one victory suddenly they shot up to fourth um so it keeps the interest going whereas if you've got 12 teams then um it's all of a sudden it's it's so easy to be cut off in the bottom half of the league um and then you've got like a um a north and south divide um in terms of quality of 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 clubs and if you're in the relegation zone, but you could be, could be, you know, fairly safe, but you're a third from bottom or fourth from bottom or something, there's no real incentive at the end of the season. However, if you've got ten teams in there, then um, it's a lot more competitive, and it also would do away with the awful playoffs that I absolutely cannot stand, particularly in the Premiership. Um, there's no need at the top of the, once you've had, I mean, I, I'm from the old school, I'll admit mm. it, I think a league should be a league, we have a cup competition, so um, why, why have two cup competitions at the end of the, end of the season? A league is a league, um, as far as I'm concerned, and, you know, great examples of that in recent times, I mean, you know, Edinburgh Ackies, Marr, uh, and clubs like that, who have run away with the, with the leagues. I remember when Ayr were miles ahead of everyone else, including Melrose. And this was the great time to bring it up because uh, obviously I was supporting the Borders teams. But, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I fully felt uh, that Ayr should have been awarded the title and not have to worry about playoffs because they were 18 points ahead at the top mm. of the table. Um, and... You know, Heriot's the same thing again. I remember watching a Heriot's Melrose game. It was the playoff final, effectively. And my heart of hearts, I wanted obviously the Borders team to win. But there was a part of me when, when Heriot's got over the line, I think it was a last second try as well that they, they got to win it. And I just felt that justice had been done because over over the season, Heriot's deserved that. Um, so I think there's, um, you know, not not a playoff fan unless you have 12 team leagues in which case i can see you know to keep the interest going um that maybe you know you aim to go in the top four um to to fight out promotion i totally get that and i get that in football as well but you also notice in football the premier league um you know there's no there's no, no. Kind of playoff at the end uh why why do we have it here um particularly at club level. I'm talking specifically at club level because obviously, you know, when money comes in and pro 14s and all this kind of stuff and, uh, you know, you're, you're wanting to keep the season and the momentum going and there's a lot more money to be made. I, I get that. Um, I don't have a problem with that. But at club level, particularly Scottish rugby level, um, I think 10-team leagues would be great. I yeah, also see quite, why... I, yeah. I was going to say, I, I see why some of the clubs want 12 teams because it's extra an extra couple of game couple of home games where they can they can get uh, you know money behind the bar and all the rest of it but these are clubs which are 
outside of the borders. The borders mm. obviously have, have the sevens culture. Um, but it's always surprised me why more clubs outside the borders don't buy into the the, the sevens because it's a real money spinner, certainly in the borders. Yeah. Uh, and some clubs like Walkerburn, for instance, and, and Earlston, um, you know, the, the income they get from one day um, at, at their tournament um, keeps the club going for the whole year. So why other clubs outside the area wouldn't necessarily buy into that um, is still a bit of a mystery to me. I'm sure they have their reasons, but you can see that if they don't have a sevens tournament in April or May, then they need these extra games, you know, uh, to actually compensate for that. Yeah, and it and it does. It, it when you look at the leagues, and I know they haven't finished this season, but when you look at the leagues as they are, certainly in National One, Two, and Three, the bottom teams are, are bottom by some way. So yeah. whereas from say tenth upwards, the gap is is much narrower between the teams. So that you would you would have much more in theory, you would have much more competitive leagues. The other thing, I mean, yeah, I mean just, that's my point, really. You you you've you'll you'll have watched a lot of uh, rugby. Is this see one change that was made this season is that the the national leagues and the Premiership are now effectively amateur, and that you can't can't pay players anything other than expenses. Um, yeah, what that appears one. to have had the effect of is that the leagues themselves are much more competitive. So there is the, I don't know if that's a side been a direct side effect of. Going amateur, and I know certain people have, have sent me information to suggest that there are ways around that. But <laughs> yeah. what a surprise! Yes. They've been finding. I mean, that is why rugby went professional in the first place because they couldn't control it back then, and they're not going to control it now. Um, you know, in, in, I mean, I, I'm a great fan of amateur rugby, and I know I've had many chats with John Rutherford at Selkirk and, and many clubs who want it to be a level playing field, mm. and they want all amateur rugby. And uh, absolutely great, you know. I think I think that's what would happen. But you'll always get by the end of the season, for instance, if a club is, um, you know, pretty well near near promotion, this, that, and the other. Um, there's always tricks and ways of of of, of getting round the laws, mm. uh, whether it was boot money in the past or whatever. So if a club wants to do it, they will do it, and they will add incentives and this, that, and the other. And it's it's just impossible to police. I mean. It, you know that is the that's the problem so it's got to be down to a kind of almost a gentleman's agreement if you like an unwritten law between clubs but it'll still go on i mean um, oh yeah i don't think you're quite right you can't get rid of it altogether but certainly the side effect of it seems to be that for example i'm gonna come back to berwick again but i know for example you know they they've (laughs) they've gone straight from regional rugby to the top of national three and they haven't you know they, they don't pay they have a policy of not paying players they'll pay them expenses mm-hmm. so guys can come back from university to to train and to to do games but they've th- that's purely on the back of having a good youth setup and players and a good set of players coming through whereas in the past when they last time they went up to national 3 a few seasons ago they started off by i think there was one team they they beat quite comfortably at home, and then when they went to the away fixture, all of a sudden this team had a couple of Kiwis in our South African playing for them. Was that last week? I can't remember. I don't know who Did it, it was. Week? It possibly might have been, but it was certainly. I think it was somebody out on the west coast, maybe. But it it mm-hmm. it maybe levels the playing field a little bit. Uh, the other suggestion we had, and again, this is um, Andrew Archer again. It's in as part of the same suggestion would be to bring back the old cup structure to give smaller teams a big day out. Big clubs now again mm, coming yeah, back to the fact that we're one. we're you know we in theory you know below below the super six the game's now amateur there is there is an element of well you might get the odd could you possibly get the odd shock 
very rare, isn't it? I remember mm. filming Last Wade again, beating Jed Forrest a few years ago, um, but there was like a hurricane wind. <laughs> uh, it was an extraordinary game, driving rain, um, and it was a, it was an amazing match. I mean, you do you do occasionally, but unlike in football, where it happens quite regularly in, in the cup, um, it's not so much really. I mean, it would really be a, a shock if a third division team took on a Premiership, for instance, mm. and, and and beat them, um, unless you've got a, a club. I mean, we've seen you know good runs. I mean, Highland very nearly beat Mar uh, in the cup um, last season. Um, so you know you you can run them close, but again you see Highland a club with great momentum and uh, ambition and and good players in there. I mean, and and the likes of GHK with their you know their international couple of of, of players in there, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to win the league uh, or anything like that. But um, you need you need the full package to actually work your way up the table. But but certainly you know as far as cups concerned, it's um, there's the health and safety thing, obviously, mm. you know, uh, which which comes into it, particularly in the in in the front row. Um, you know, it's you've got to be very very careful these days for that sort of thing. Um, as far as cups concerned, I mean, I I quite like the idea of um, well, again, going back to competitions as we're we're, we're talking about structures and stuff like that. But I, I would I would certainly go with um, the Premiership and the National One all in the mix together. Again, I'm assuming that it would be 10 teams each, so you'd get the 20 teams um, in the in, in the cup competition, which is made up of National 1. And, um, I mean, you can still have some great shocks between a, the bottom of National 1 against, you know, the, the, the league leaders in the Premiership. And then you'll have the National League Cup competition, and um, you would have uh, National Two and National Three, mm. the teams from there, sort of fighting it out. And but also, what what I would do, I mean, the, the, when it comes to structures, um, I I still think that you could actually get the leagues finished, done and dusted by Christmas, by starting it on the first of August, uh, the first Saturday in August, and and have a five month more or less solid league structure because mm. um, it is really fun you once the league starts uh, you know you, you you have about eight or nine or ten games on the trot before the autumn internationals come in and you really build momentum there and then you have this gap and you maybe fit in one or two games in december and then nothing till february i mean it's it's so bitty whereas warmer weather as well drier grounds and you know you start a month earlier and you say right league rugby is august to december january february this is an opportunity for um the players to move up um, maybe have a like bring i'm a great district fan as everybody knows i'd love to see the districts come back january mm. and february um and i think now that we have super six as well there's this gap between the premiership and super six i mean everyone was looking at filling the gap between premiership and pro rugby with the Super Six, but I still think there are a lot of people who, you know, are not really interested in semi-pro rugby or pro rugby. Again, their pinnacle would be to play for their district at kind of club level. So I would say, well, January, February comes around and you could have some really exciting uh, matches um, in that window, have the cup in March in consecutive, you know, four, four, four weeks. Um, with everyone playing every week so that whoever's knocked out of the first round, you know, they go into the Shield and then the Shield quarterfinals, whoever's knocked out, 
there then in the plates. So you're guaranteeing four weeks of rugby at the various levels. So you've got your your cup, your shield, your plate and your ball. Um, and obviously, if you're working with 20 teams, then you would have to have a couple of preliminary um, matches just to, to make sure that... Uh, the numbers would tally and you'd get to that 16 for the first round. Mm. Um, so I can see that happening. And, and the great thing about that is it then clears the way for April and May to have your sevens, but not just in the borders. I would love to see the scene, you know, go outside of the borders and, and you know, have like we have kings of the sevens in the borders. It would be great to have something similar in, in Edinburgh, Caledonia and also in Glasgow as well. And then maybe, you know, just maybe in July, you get the top two teams from the areas all coming together and have one big Scottish sevens kind of playoff, which I think would be a fantastic thing to do. Well, that'd be um, my, no, that, especially, that's so, the way I would structure it. Yeah, because I mean, so, certain, you know, sevens did very well at the Commonwealth Games, but the we haven't really done anything to capitalise on that in Scotland. You know, well, such with the it. game. I mean, and... we, we've invented the game and all the other countries have kind of taken it forward. And I think we, you know, sevens is such an entertaining game anyway. Mm. We were talking about spectator interest and keeping that alive. And, and you know, nothing does that more than, than sevens. You only have to look at the Melrose Sevens tournament over a hundred tries um, on, on one Saturday afternoon. Um, it's just fantastic. Uh, and it's a day out. It, it's, it's almost a, a, a bit like an American sport in a way in that the sport is almost secondary to the day out itself. You know, you spend time in the bar and there's games going on. Yeah. You, you know, people, you know, pull up in the car park having picnics, it's not, as you say, it's not. It's not necessarily all about the rugby, although that is part of it. It's 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 the it's the the event itself, the day out, the and and well, Melrose indeed are unfortunately unable to run theirs this year, but certainly had a big event planned this year mm. uh, to mark it with, with with I think one eye on on hosting the was it the Sevens World Cup they were aiming for. I think in in in, in about fifteen twenty years. Get the World Series back was certainly yeah. uh, to Scotland. Um, I mean, it makes. I mean. You know, I've, I've spoken to, you know, the best sevens players that I've met along the way, and they all want, you know, when they came to Scotland, they they didn't really want to play at Murrayfield; they wanted to play at Melrose. You know, that was mm. that was the culture, that was the the home of it. Obviously, a lot of infrastructure needs to go into to make that work, but um, they came to a point where they did actually get something in place which um, would have made this happen. And I think now you've got the the uh, the three G pitch at Melrose as well. Um, it is possible. It is possible. You know, hmm. it is, it's definitely possible. We've got better infrastructure now. We've got the railway, obviously, the borders railway, um, so communications a lot easier. We're getting, uh, I think, Premier Inns coming in very shortly. So all of a sudden, um, thanks to the the new borders railway that's been in five years now. Um, you're making it a lot more accessible for people to, to come in for a big day, and and I think you know with with the hotels etc. I mean you you've. We've seen it in the past, uh, um, the, the hydro at Peebles, not a million miles away. There's hostings of families. There, there's, there's ways around it. Uh, every problem that, that anyone would, would, would come up and say, well, you can't do this because there's always a way around somewhere. It might not be uh, absolutely um, you know, straightforward to, to put these in place, but I, I do believe that the, uh, the atmosphere and the fact that uh, it's, it's at Melrose would be an absolutely fantastic thing for, for, for everyone. But I, I'm, I'm just amazed, as I say, that, that it doesn't seem to me to be a priority, the game of sevens, even though it's now an Olympic sport and it was invented in Scotland. Mm, yeah. Um, 
We'll move a little bit broader now. This is uh, Ryan Robbins came up with this suggestion to have a British and Irish professional league with two conferences. It's no, no, mm. no, no promotion, no relegation, but two a two conference system. Obviously, with play, you'd have to have the playoffs as well. Um, I mean, it's. It's where I don't you fit it in, isn't it? Well, that's it. I don't think one. I don't think you'd ever get Irish the Irish uh, the IRFU to agree to a salary cap, and whether or not the you'd get English professional team enough English professional teams to step aside because you couldn't absorb. I think twelve. Have they got twelve? They have twelve plus one other, don't they? They have twelve plus Falcons who would be at the minute who are playing in the Championship, who own the Premiership Premiership rugby. You'd have to get at least a few of them to drop out before you could then have a. Enough to yeah. form the conference system. I think it. I think it would have more complications than anything else to try and get something else sort of going. But uh, and you can barely get you know, the you can barely get the unions to agree on a sponsorship for the for the, for the Six Nations, let alone yeah. agreeing a league. It, it, it is difficult. I, th- I think you know try and simplify everything as as much as you possibly can. But um, but again, it's you know it's finding that that will to do it. I mean, I know certainly in the in the borders, as we all know, you know some people are really pro district rugby and then there's others who are really pro the super six idea you know having a club um like southern knights um representing the borders and uh, you know obviously a lot of needle around that and then mm. people on both sides have their own opinions i mean i've had many a chat with mike dalgetty at uh, the former director of rugby at melrose who kind of lives and breathes breathes melrose and um you know um very very passionate that uh, melrose um, and the professionalism of of the club, and you never deny the way they look after their players, etc. Um, you know they wanted effectively to be the team of 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 the south of Scotland. And as Rob Christie said the other day when I was speaking to him, you know not everyone's going to buy into that. They they totally accept that, but at least it's a pathway for players like it's Selkirk and Hoyk and, and Gala who want to play semi pro rugby. Um, they've got a choice. They could go to one of the the three Edinburgh clubs or a bit further field, or they could uh, they could play for the Southern Knights. Um, and and if they want to do that, then you know they would be made very very welcome, I'm sure, by Mr. Christie and uh, and his team. Um, but but of course there was a, as I say a lot of needle about that, understandably because of the culture and everything else. But now I think people are kind of looking at that situation a bit more positively. We've mm. got uh, the chairman, uh, the president of the Border League now is Gordon Brown, who's also involved uh, high up at, at Melrose. And um, you know I was talking to him at the end at the beginning of of last season, and he was saying you know his uh, you know what he wants to do to make his mark as president, he would love to see all the clubs of the borders coming together in perfect harmony <laughs> within five <laughs> years. And uh, we wished him luck, obviously, on that. Um, I don't think it will ever happen, but at least if people kind of have a go. And I think there's now a place for district rugby in the south of Scotland. And um, from the knowledge that I have so far, I, can, I understand that, that the talks have been well in advance uh, to bring back district rugby at sort of premiership national one level. And I think that is brilliant. Mm. I think that would work. Um, it would also be a, a fantastic trial for people to uh, get involved with the Scottish Club International. Uh, so it would be selected from the, the kind of the districts. I mean, there's, there's opportunities there. But you know, you. I suppose it's you, also it's also isn't it, it, it? It's a shop window as well for the Super Six clubs. So if you were to have inter, the inter district championships for, for players at club level to come along and say, "Look, yeah. you come along." One one will have the selectors there from the from, from the club 
the International Club 15, but also you're going to have representatives there from all the Super 6 teams and they're going to come along and, and a bit like a draft, I suppose, in a way, and say, this is your opportunity to show what you can do. And then there's a clear pathway then, and okay, we'll pick from this, from this we'll take a few players from, from each region and bring them into this, give them an, an opportunity to come play Super 6 and see if they yeah. can make that step up. Absolutely. I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of people. And, and uh, you know, the ones who have got the ambition, fantastic shop window, as you say, those who want to play just club rugby have got, you know, no ambitions at all to go into semi-pro because they've got jobs, uh, you know, this this kind of thing. A lot of people self-employed these days. And, you know, uh, I used to live next door to Nick Bevan, the famous prop from Melrose, of course, who, um, you know, played uh, age grade level for, for Scotland. And, and he's a carpenter. And, you know, he broke his hand one day and um, he was out for like three or four months. So mm. there's all that you know, you've got to be factored in these days that, you know, it, it's it's very different, you know, playing for fun is, is good, but, you know, it, is it going to affect possibly your your main source of income as well? So so there's that, um, but there are players who do want to, who would love to play for the district, you know, and I think now is a way that you can have Southern Knights is the semi-pro, and then you've got the gap underneath that, south of scotland and i think that would be fantastic and i think the most mouth-watering thing i'd love to see um would be the south against southern knights that would be fantastic wouldn't it oh that'd be absolutely fantastic <laughs> yes you can just imagine yeah, the, charity, needle, do, the needle do in that game yeah, yeah. I mean, the needle, it would be great i mean you know you just know that you'd get thousands there um yeah. to, to see that but i mean what a what a fantastic celebration of the sport in the borders if you had an annual fixture um because i mean the southern knights obviously have been to newcastle falcons and played uh, you know the academy side over there um i just think it'd be brilliant to, to see you know the best of the rest of the borders effectively um you know taking on uh, southern knights it would be fantastic uh, spectacle um and you know I, I think now's the time where you know as much as people can if they've got the will there get behind the southern knights but similarly you know let's see the south of scotland come back again which would be terrific um it'll never be the same obviously as the old days against the springboks i mean those days have gone and we'll park them the history is very important but it's amazing that the red and white stripes mean so much even now to you know youngsters who are, who are playing the game and the last time i think the south played was against Caledonia at um, Bridgehawk in Stirling and everyone who played for the south of Scotland there uh, made up from all the clubs in the borders um, it was a very very special atmosphere indeed mm. it was great to see all these players from clubs who are knocking seven bells out of each other one week and now they're coming together um, in 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 under the banner of the south of Scotland and it really did mean a lot to them the history meant a lot to them even though the glory days were before they were actually born most of them so it it, it does mean a lot and if they can get that that thing in place now for the south of Scotland I think that would solve a lot of problems it would diffuse um hostile situations yeah. within the borders but I think you know it, it would work quite well I think and I think also and what we've seen over the past few years because we've only had four south of Scotland games uh, this century uh, they've won them all incidentally Barbarians of course Northumberland and a couple against Caledonia home and away so they're, they're undefeated in the 21st century at the moment which is great but they've also got the sevens set up 
Mm. And we've seen the south of Scotland <clears throat> win the Carlisle Sevens, the Braidholm Sevens, um, the Edinburgh Sevens as well. They've been um, to uh, Chester. Um, there were plans as well to go to the Prague Sevens uh, this year. Unfortunately, obviously, it was all called off. But there's definitely, again, a gap you know a, a, a place there where you can have the south playing you know in june july whatever in these summer tournaments and again getting these youngsters from all the clubs um getting involved um enjoying the culture and uh, and of course now that we have melrose um as a club side as well you know they would uh, they would be sort of back involved with the South uh, again, which would be fantastic. And there's some fantastic, you know, young players coming through the Olsen High School and the, the Melrose Wasp set up. I mean, these guys, you know, again, a fantastic stepping stone. Um, but, you know, really um, creating opportunities for, for players in the borders. And it gets it, like, it gets shirts back in clubhouses, doesn't it? Because that's one of the great things you, I used to love when you, I was the same as you, I kind of, I stopped playing when I was about 15, 16, but, one of the great things I loved playing in the borders was you'd go to clubhouses and they'd all have the shirts up, you know, the old representative shirts, you know, they have, you know, recognisable names that played for Scotland that put their shirt up in the clubhouse. But then, like you said, you'd have, you'd have the South of Scotland shirts up from guys that represent mm. the South of Scotland. I know in Berwick, they've got a couple of you know, Northumberland representative level shirts up as well. And it really, it just creates that connection, doesn't it, beyond that. Say this this club isn't just this club, it's part of something bigger. We've had guys go and represent internationally, but we've also had guys go and represent to the district as well. It's not just, it's not then, you know, a club looking after their own. They are part of a wider rugby community, even if it's just regional. Um, the other thing that, that while we talk about pathways, this was um, something it was um, somebody brought up was um, ha having completely neutral setup slash evaluations, taking um, looking at each region to avoid coaches from just picking guys they know. I think this is at youth level. Um, this is in reference, I think, to the Luke Crosby interview on Rugby Pass, where he was sort of saying that certainly there was some of his youth coaches had said, I'm going to go with the guy I know, the guy I train every week. And how do you then mm. overcome that bias? How do you then really kind of pick the best of the best young players coming through rather than just the coaches who are involved at club level, picking the players they know at club level will do a job and whether or not you get, go back to the old days of selectors that kind mm. of try, you know, travel. Seems such travel a long around. time ago. That, that yes. Happened. It's interesting because I was talking to Rob Moffat uh, the other day, who's uh, the new joint director of rugby at, uh, at Melrose. <clears throat> and um, he was very concerned about the lack of borders players, young players involved at, um, at age grade level in mm. Scotland. And, and I was sort of having a wee look at, as well just to see um, who selected. Now, in the under-16s at the moment, it, it's not too bad. We've got some real talent coming through. Uh, Corey Tate from Hoyk and uh, Sam Derrick at Melrose and Murray Wilson, Elliot Stanger. Um, you know, there are, you know, guys coming through at under-16 level. But under-18, it's, uh, I think we've got three out of the 19 are borderers. Uh, under 20, just a handful there, good ones though, Jacob Hendry, Dan Gamble and Rory Darge, obviously the captain of the under 20s and Tom Jeffrey from, from Jed Forrest. So there are a few peppered about, but I think, you know, he would like to see a lot more and, and it, it kind of uh, goes along with what you're saying as well, that there's a lot of people potentially slipping through the net because, you know, they're, they're, they're not 
in with the in crowd, if you like. Mm. Uh, and he's very concerned about that. But from a border's point of view as well, I mean, he w- was very kind of uh, pleased to see the likes of Fraser Thompson coming in as head coach of Gala uh, next season. Um, there's uh, Scott Johnson, the former Melrose head coach, is now in Hoyk. You've got Scott White, who signed another year at Selkirk. So all of a sudden, in one kind of fail swoop we've got um four coaches um from melrose at four different teams in the borders now that is obviously from a southern knights perspective that that that's uh, very pleasing news for rob christie because he's got people who he knows who know the melrose setup who know the southern knights setup who can offer a pathway uh up, up to the Southern Knights, and, and I can see exactly, you know, what they're they're trying to do there. It's just obviously happened the way it has. I mean, uh, but you have four clubs in the borders who have now got Melrose representation. Mm. Um, so you would think the path would be easier now to, to get players other than just former Melrose players playing for the Southern Knights. Mm. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If 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 Edinburgh isn't going to come to the borders. To, to look at these young players, then the borders has to, you know, to, to to kind of take the initiative and and take these players to Edinburgh almost in a way, and and the way to do that is by creating pathways in the borders to get these guys away of, of playing at a level where they're going to be, they're going to, you know, people are going to have no option other than to take to stand up and take notice of them. Yeah, I mean, we we still want the rivalry. I mean, we love the rivalry. You know, there's nothing like a border league encounter. Uh, it might not be the greatest match, but my goodness, you know, to see most of the team uh, representing the town. I mean, that's what you want. Two teams on the park, packed full of locals who are, you know, just knocking heaven bells out of everybody. Um, but at the end of the day, that's what the the border league culture is like and, mm. and um, there's nothing quite like it Bill McLaren said if you if you've never been to a border league match then you've never been to a rugby match um, <laughs> you've got to experience it my first ever rugby match in, in the borders was way back in 1968 Hoyk against Gala at um, at Netherdale and it was literally 12 deep right round the pitch I mean times have changed now but back then as a as a wee boy um, going to a match like that and seeing probably getting on for 20 internationalists as well and mm. obviously changed times but back then you had the likes of i mean it almost runs off the off the, off the tongue your arthur brown your jock turners your john frames and you know people like that roger arneal used to play for for gal as well near McCune used to play for gala i mean just um fantastic names and um it was just a an amazing situation and and i was hooked right from that one game when I was like seven, eight years old, that that was something a bit special and, and the culture of, of borders rugby, um, you know, it's, it's really, really exciting to, to, to watch kind of local derbies, etc. And, and I think, you know, the more, the more we get, the, the better it will be. And of course, you know, sometimes the rivalry has in the past got a little bit silly, but I think, you know, now is, now is a great time, particularly if we can get the district rugby back with the South of Scotland in place and um, district rugby back, you know, that level between premiership rugby and, and semi-pro rugby. I think, you know, that, that could be the answer for a lot of people, a good compromise, if you like. Um, and, and let's just, you know, get as many borders players uh, up to that level as we possibly can using all the resources that we can. Yeah, and um, the the last one I want to touch on is structural changes. Now, this is it's a fairly hot topic at the minute in the world of Scottish rugby. Um, structural mm. changes. Um, I, I mean, interesting in your take on this, Jim. I mean, certainly when 
um, the offside line who've reported on this, looking at their reporting, then digging a little de deeper into the actual papers and, and, and the documents and policies on how things are supposed to work uh, within Scottish rugby. The, the For me, in principle, the... Uh, the way the the way the structures are set up, and I think that was the the original um, Dunlop review set it up. In principle, the, it, it all seems very sensible. I think what what has changed is that the the, the a significant amount of power has shifted away from the council, who are the the club's representatives of the SI, who are supposed to hold the the boards to account and make sure that they're doing everything in the interests of Scottish rugby. I think I'm not sure that looking at a change a lot other than this 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 decision making matrix kind of shifting the power back towards the council to to give them more power to oversee the goings on you know but, but making decisions about investing in american and french teams you know have to go before the council before their you know financial commitments are made um i, I don't think they I think being involved in the day to day running would 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 be unworkable but certainly some of the bigger decisions that have been made recently um, at board level and, and, and CEO level, you would want to see those come back under the council. I don't know whether you had any su suggestions for changes to structural changes you'd want to see. It's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, people like David Barnes, I tend to kind of leave leave that to, to those <laughs> sort of people, who, those investigative journalists um, who do, do a great job in holding people to account, uh, which has to be done, of course. Uh, um, obviously, we're living in a completely different world now. It's professionalism. Um, <clears throat> it's all about selling out Murrayfield. Um, it has to be done to, to pay the wages and, and keep everything everything going. Um, you know, like most people, I think they've, they've all got an opinion of you know how it how it works and how it doesn't work but unless i think you've actually been inside um murrayfield or bt murrayfield we'll call it uh, obviously um unless you've actually seen the workings and seeing how everything kind of does work uh, it's very difficult to kind of comment i mean i i'm i'm on the fringe of i've worked for scottish rugby um for three years covering national one and things and that's really my own involvement so it, it's difficult for me to kind of comment uh, in any great detail um on on things like that but you know I do feel that the clubs themselves often have some great ideas, uh, some great things to say, uh, some valid things to say, and they aren't being listened to. Um, so I'd like to to ensure that uh, if, if anyone has got something they want to say, whether at AGM level, level or whatever, then they're, then they're able to say it. And, and obviously it's become over the years increasingly more difficult to have your say and represent your club and, and get things um, done at, at grassroots level um, because everything seems to be very much weighted in, 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 in the way of um, the, the internationals, the, the, the dealings with, uh, with you know, American clubs and, and, and all this kind of thing, the sponsorship side, that, that is the top priority up there because um, that's where the money is ultimately. Yeah, I think the, um, I think, yeah, I think the flip side of that though is that these the players that then play international rugby don't don't appear fully formed at the age of twenty twenty one at the professional clubs and international level ready to play. They come from the clubs themselves, I guess. So it's it's making sure that there are still clubs there to produce the players. I suppose at the end of the day. Yeah, um, the the thing that's always kind of worried me, I think, was when. 
the the comment from Mark Dodson was that uh, you know we feel there should be fewer clubs but stronger clubs. Um, very difficult one that because I, I see what he's saying, but I, I look at clubs in in sort of my area at the moment, the Walker Burns, the Hoyt YM St Boswells. Now we've lost St Boswells for the moment anyway. They certainly haven't played in the last couple of years. Um, Walkerburn absolutely struggling, but still there. Um, and again, a club that relies on their sevens to um, to pull them through. Um, but, you know, I spent a, a day at Walkerburn and uh, you see what's happening behind the scenes and uh, you feel for clubs like that because these, these are guys who just want a game on a Saturday. They want to have some social rugby as well. And, um, you know, when, when I hear a suggestion of fewer clubs and, you know, oh, we don't really need them sort of thing. We want, you know, stronger clubs and fitter clubs. You know, what happens to these guys? What happens to the town of Walkerburn? You know, great history over 100 years. Um, we've seen Hoyt YM go as well. Obviously, slightly different situation there because effectively they're now Hoyt Force. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of lot of teams in Hoyt, of course, uh, from... You know the the, the Hoyt Harlequins and Hoyt Lindine and then there's Trays and Hoyt Albion and loads and loads and and that's a lot of uh, a lot of games for 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 people uh, a lot of players to find to actually fill fill the gaps. Um, it's very hard to sustain it, um, and and you know realistically I can see where he's coming from because he's he's talking very much about the future and, and stronger clubs and you know is it going to be the right thing to do for, for these smaller clubs to um, to just kind of struggle on and miss games and all this kind of stuff. But the more you miss games, the more you get penalised. I've never worked that mm. one out. Um, it's always been a strange one where we've seen clubs getting, you know, finishing the season on negative points because they've penalised for not, not putting a team together. Um, whereas, you know, I, th- I think more could be done to help these clubs. Yeah. Without, develop, with, uh, develop them. And, and I suppose it's about comes back to the competition's point is giving them a competition that that, that, if, that everybody signs up to and if, if if a fixture can't be fulfilled no one gets penalized and it's just it just rolls on but if everybody in the league is in the same boat within that region if it's regional it teams difficult. within that boat you could it's yeah yeah it's very difficult i mean i remember seeing a a few years ago when i was covering falkirk in national one great little club um and it was at the time where they had made the decision as a club you know, we're not paying our players anymore. The following season, I think they had about two players left um, <laughs> and they were getting beaten by 80, 90 points and yeah. it was free fall down to the the next level. But they kind of factored that in. They knew that was going to happen. Um, a lot of their best players went on and done very well. Some have got Scotland Sevens um, uh, caps as well. So, you know, great little club, um, but they made a stand. They said, look, you know, we can't afford this anymore. We have uh, a youth policy. We want to, um, you know, go the amateur route. And that means we're going to get relegated. We're going to get hammered. But it was great to see the following season that there was a, a vast improvement. And these guys who were turning up week in, week out on the wrong end of a 90-point hiding uh, were still there. And the experience from that, you know, they gained 
was was very positive. Hard to believe, you know, you get anything positive from a 19-0 defeat. But but they did. They picked themselves up. They were playing at a lower level and they fought their way back again. And it's good to see, you know, clubs like Falkirk sort of bouncing back. And as we mentioned about Berwick earlier on, um, they've done the same thing. Um, and we want to see some of these, you know, these names, these Hillhead Jordan Hills, these uh, uh, West of Scotland's and stuff, you know, get back into the, the way they should be. But it's it's not it's not a given right. You know they have to put the the hard work in as well. But as I say, you know I don't like this this idea of um, kicking clubs when when they're down because uh, they need all the support that they can get. Mm. And, and you know, you know clubs have proved that they can bounce back. You know they just need a bit of a rub of the green, um, buy into the culture, and and then things will will hopefully you know get better. And um, you know like you know like. The clubs we mentioned um, have done. They've gone on and and done done great things. And you know, long may that continue. But you know, as far as the structure is concerned, I mean, I, I just would like to think that the the voices of, of these clubs are heard um, a little bit clearer than they have been in in recent times. Yeah. Well, I, I, that seems a a lovely point to as any to leave it, Stuart. Thank you very much for joining us this week on the podcast. Pleasure. It's been a lovely ramble through a bit of Scottish rugby history we've had, a bit of nostalgia, some some good good suggestions for changes to make. Hopefully, um, people have enjoyed it. We'll um, we're coming back next week. We're going to be uh, looking back at the Living with the Lions documentary from 1997 on next week's podcast. So, if that's available on Amazon Prime, if you want to go and watch it in the meantime, then you can listen along to our discussion analysis of it next week. Uh, But for the moment, um, it is goodbye from me and goodbye from Stuart.